Hello and welcome to the second edition of the Marion Consort podcast. I'm Rory McCleary, Artistic Director of the Marion Consort. Today we thought we'd explore some wonderful Portuguese Renaissance music, as well as delving into the fascinating history and politics that lie behind it. We're also delighted to feature an interview with our lovely soprano Charlotte, who very kindly answers some of my and your questions about this repertoire. It's always great to receive your questions, so please do keep sending them to us. When we think of great Renaissance composers and the countries they hail from, it's fair to say that Portugal is normally quite far down the list. This, however, couldn't be further from the truth. While it's Spanish late 16th century polyphony, by composers like Tomás Luís de Victoria and Francisco Guerrero, that is traditionally associated with emotional intensity and daring use of chromaticism and harmonic colour, the same is true in spades of their Portuguese counterparts, particularly in those pieces written for times of mourning. The frequency with which composers of the 16th century set sorrowful texts to music, not only for the period before Easter from Ash Wednesday through Lent to Holy Saturday, but also for use throughout the year, particularly as part of the Office of the Dead and the Requiem Service, I think says a great deal about these composers' relationship with death. It's very easy to forget, although sadly perhaps less so at the present time, that at the time this music was being composed, death was far more ubiquitous, and as a result, the need to contemplate, process and reflect on mortality was far more pressing. For composers of church music, this focus on suffering, grief, death, and the possibility of salvation as well, of course, was perhaps not only motivated by the harsh realities of everyday life, but also by the artistic and expressive potential that these texts offered. As it's fair to say that for many Renaissance composers of all nationalities, they are at their most expressive and emotionally engaged when working in this particular area of the emotional spectrum. For composers in late 16th and early 17th century Portugal, musical settings of these sombre devotional and biblical texts also presented an effective and potentially covert vehicle for political commentary, much in the same way as they did for English Catholic composers in England around this time. And on this note, if you haven't yet heard our previous podcast all about the music of William Byrd, then do have a listen. Before we consider the music, first a little historical background. From 1580 until 1640, the Portuguese lived under the rule of the Spanish Habsburgs. This came about because of the disappearance and presumed death in 1578 of the 24-year-old King Sebastian during his first military campaign in Morocco. Sebastian was succeeded by his 66-year-old great-uncle Henry, who as a younger son in the Portuguese royal family hadn't been expected to rule, and so had taken holy orders and was a cardinal in the Catholic Church. Henry also died in 1580, and as both men had passed away without heirs, and importantly in Henry's case, without appointing a successor, the crown went to Philip II of Spain, Sebastian's uncle. This led to 60 years of Spanish rule in Portugal, and importantly for the Spanish Habsburgs, of Spanish control of Portugal's considerable overseas empire, something that the Portuguese people were understandably unhappy about. 
As Sebastian's body was never definitively recovered from Morocco, despite claims to the contrary from Philip II, presumably seeking to quash any dissent over his rule, a number of impostors, some more credible than others, presented themselves as the young king throughout the 1580s. Two of these were publicly hanged. One was sentenced to work in the galleys, a fate possibly even worse than death, and a fourth was imprisoned in Spain. This fourth and final impostor, who rose to prominence in Naples, apparently had his claims to the throne fatally undermined when it was discovered that he couldn't even speak Portuguese. While none of these impostors seriously threatened Philip II's position, they did help to mythologise the figure of Sebastian, who became known as O Encoberto, the Hidden One, and O Desejado, the Desired One, with a belief in the popular consciousness that this sleeping king would at some point return to save Portugal and its people. This cult of Sebastianism thrived well into the 17th century, to the point that when John IV of Portugal reclaimed the Portuguese throne in 1640, he had to swear an oath to yield to Sebastian, who at this point would have been 86 years old if he was still alive, should he ever return. John IV himself was an avid music collector, and is probably best known to choral singers as the possible composer of Crux Fidelis. Somehow, Sebastianism even persisted beyond this, regaining popularity in Portugal in the mid-18th century, and even reappearing in Portuguese Brazil in the late 19th century. For Portuguese composers active during the reign of the Habsburgs, their music was an effective outlet for their sadness at being governed by a foreign power, and also their longing for the restoration of the Portuguese monarchy. Manuel Cardoso, a musician priest who had a close relationship with John IV both before and after he reclaimed the throne, dedicated many of his publications to the king, including his final volume, printed in Lisbon in 1648. In the dedication to John, Cardoso quotes the opening lines of the Nunc Dimittis, referencing both his own extreme old age, he was 82 at the time, which for the early 17th century was astonishing, and the idea of the king being the longed-for salvation which Sebastianism had promised. Cardozo's contemporary and fellow Lisbon resident Duarte Lobo held positions as Mestre de Capea at the Hospital Real in the city, and subsequently director of music at the cathedral. He's sometimes referred to as belonging to the wolf pack, as there were a number of Renaissance composers with similar-sounding names, including Johannes Lupi and Alonso Lobo, something which has occasionally confused scholars and historians. Lobo based his Missa Veni Domine on a motet of the same name by Palestrina. It's almost certainly a Sebastianist work. Lobo's choice of this particular musical model for his mass was likely motivated by the elusive nature of the text, which asks God to return without delay in order to ease the wrong done to your people and call back to their land those who have been dispersed. Stir up your power, O Lord, and come that you might save us. In light of the prevailing political situation, Lobo's selection of this motet as the basis for his mass 
can easily be read as an expression of his feelings towards the occupying Habsburg dynasty. Lobo uses the established 16th century practice of parody or imitatio composition, where composers borrow, reuse and reshape the musical material from their chosen source to create a new work. The word parody for us nowadays carries some negative connotations of mockery or maybe slightly lazy copying, but for Renaissance composers this was an act of supreme musical creation, allowing them not only to pay homage to another composer's music, but also simultaneously to show off their own skill in being able to invent something entirely new from pre-existing material. Lobo makes full use of this technique in his mass, incorporating musical ideas from throughout Palestrina's motet. This is particularly notable in the Benedictus, where he tellingly employs Palestrina's music for the textual phrase and call back to their land those who have been dispersed, for his own setting in the Benedictus of the words, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Lobo's Requiem motet, Pater Beccavi, also incorporates existing musical material, but in a very different way. One of the five voices repeats the same musical and textual phrase, Miserere mei Deus, over and over again throughout this short piece. The simple repeating cantus firmus, Have mercy on me, O God, which contains only two notes, a semitone apart, is borrowed from a much earlier work, written over a century prior by the French composer Josquin Desprez. Josquin's setting of the Miserere, in which this same phrase is also repeated throughout, was composed in the very early 16th century in Italy, and inspired a huge number of works by later composers, including William Byrd's In Felix Ego that we touched on last time. It's really striking that Duarte Lobo, writing in Portugal a hundred years after Josquin, would have known the earlier composer's motet well enough to make this kind of musical connection. But we can easily forget that musicians in the Renaissance were often well-travelled and moved in very cosmopolitan circles, with lots of exchanges of music and ideas going on across national boundaries. This is how Duarte Lobo's 1621 mass print ended up in a library in Oxford, and it's also how a motet by Josquin's contemporary, the Frenchman Jean Mouton, ended up in a Guatemalan manuscript in the early 18th century, but that's, I think, something for another podcast. Before we get to the questions, 
a final historical snippet, which I'm including mainly so I can talk about one of my favourite Portuguese Renaissance works. As well as Holy Week and the Requiem service, the Office of the Dead played a very important role in Catholic liturgy in the Renaissance, and therefore also in the output of Portuguese composers. Although it sounds a little like the title of a George A. Romero horror film, the Office of the Dead is in fact a very specific set of prayers. This is also where we get the English word dirge from, for a funereal song of grief. It's a corruption of the Latin dirige me, which begins matins for the office of the dead. These prayers provided composers with a rich body of highly emotionally charged texts to set to music, among them circum dererunt me, a very personal expression of the fear of death. This is one of a number of motets by Ares Fernandes, a composer about whom almost nothing is known, beyond his possible association with the monastery of Santa Cruz in Coimbra, where almost all of his surviving works are preserved in manuscript. Fernandes's piece would have been performed there during Holy Week by the Royal Chapel of the Dukes of Braganza, the family of John IV of Portugal, and is an astonishingly evocative work, conjuring up the snares of death of the text in the overlapping strands of polyphony before the stark homophony for Dolores Inferni, the pains of hell. So Charlotte, it's wonderful to have you with us answering some questions about this fantastic Portuguese repertoire. So let's dive straight in then. We obviously have recorded this repertoire, but we also have performed it quite a lot in concert, both before the recording and also since. This is maybe a little bit of a difficult question to answer, but which do you prefer, um, the live performance or recording? I think my initial response would always be to say live performance. Um, but I think with music like this that requires a lot more studying of the text and of the, the way the lines intertwine with each other, recording gives you a chance to do that. It gives you the time that you perhaps wouldn't have if you were just rehearsing and performing um, the next day. Um, we performed this programme several times after recording it. And I think those were probably... The most exciting performances because of course we'd had the time to to learn it in depth but then also have the excitement of live performance at the same time so performance but informed by that real kind of close scrutiny of the music that can only really come in a recording yeah at, certainly at the moment we're able to reflect a lot on these things and also we're acutely aware that of course you know recordings are at the moment all we really have and so you know live performance is, is something that um is very much missing from our from our lives and you know that we're very keen to get back to as soon as we can yes exactly um and it's something that as you say we're all missing and as as lovely as it is practicing at home by yourself um, it's just not the same and when you're used to singing in an ensemble and working with other people and playing off each other it's it, it's terribly sad not to be able to do it at the moment and I'm listening I listened to some of this this disc earlier today and and it did just make me 
feel a great sense of sadness and thinking back to the time when we were performing it and recording it and um, how wonderful that was. But hopefully it will all be back soon. Yeah, fingers crossed, of course, yeah. A lot of the music that we recorded for this album was certainly then relatively unknown. Are there times when you look at a score, um, when you're beginning to learn something, or even when we're um, about to rehearse it all together, and it seems pretty ordinary on the page, but then actually when all the parts come together in the rehearsal, in the act of of making music uh, with the other singers, you realise that there's something quite special about it? Yes, I think, I mean, this happens all the time um, in lots of different repertoire, but with this music particularly, I found there were several pieces on this disc which... Um, you know, looking at it at home, even playing through with, with, with the other parts on the piano, you don't get the same sense that you do when you're putting all the parts together with the other singers. Um, the Cardozo Lamentations, which I believe is the first piece on the disc, for me was was one of those where my line actually on, on paper looked perhaps a little bit boring, you know, lots of long phrases, um, but when it was put together with the other singers, the sense of suspense throughout the piece is absolutely extraordinary and you just it just leaves you sort of wanting more the whole time. I always find this very interesting because I very much consider that the music is what happens when the performers create it. It's not what you see on the page, that the score um, is just really a, a map, a, a kind of guide, a, a, you know, a reference tool, but it's not the, if people forget that, it's not the music itself. Yes, exactly. And of course, when you're looking at a score you're not hearing the text in the same way either and the way each singer has interpreted the text. And so that's something else that that is completely different to what you would perhaps see on the page. Of course. And I, I always am amazed at the idea that actually, originally, the singers would only have had their own parts on the page as well. So they had absolutely no visual context. And so it was all about the act of performance because that was the only way they had any inkling of how their part fitted together with everybody else's. Yes, that's something that I've found really interesting because I have a background as an instrumentalist. And of course, when you're playing, if you're playing in an orchestra, you do only have your line. I mean, if you're trying to read an awesome orchestral score, it would be impossible unless you had incredible eyesight. Um, And so when I started doing a lot more work as a singer, that was something which was just complete joy, actually, being able to see all the other parts and reference constantly how your part is intertwining with everyone else's. Certainly the, the pieces that we chose for, for our recording, because they have this, this particular theme, there's a sense often of kind of, of real darkness about it. So do you find that kind of emotionally the music weighs on you in a way that perhaps other repertoire doesn't because of this kind of sense of sort of emotional involvement and and the type of texts that are being set yes i think in order to do this this music justice you have to have an emotional involvement with it uh, which at times can be really difficult especially if you have something personal going on in your life that um that perhaps springs to mind as you're singing the music I mean, in that sense, it's sort of a, a bit like method acting. I certainly draw my own kind of life experiences when I'm trying to to con- convey some text to the audience. Um, and it can really take its toll, actually. And if you're recording and you're doing six hours a day, several days in a row, um, and you're getting tired, you're, you're singing at times of the day when perhaps you wouldn't normally be, it's 
you have to really sort of keep it together sometimes. And of course, this disc was recorded up in Scotland in beautiful Christen Church, um, which is lovely. It's sort of in the middle of nowhere. Um, but of course, you're away from your family and you're and you're with the same people for several days in a row, and it becomes completely all-consuming actually. And in the breaks, the tea breaks, you talk about the music, and over dinner, you talk about the music, and it sort of um, becomes your life for a while. And I think, well, I think, I think for me, actually, that's one of the things that I really love about this repertoire but also I think about you know the Mar- the Marion Consort in general is that there is that always I think and I think it's so important that wonderful sense of emotional engagement from the singers and that they really are putting themselves into the music be it in performance or in a recording and you can really feel that because there are sometimes I think some quarters of the early music community that feel that Renaissance music is somehow kind of ascetic it's emotionally unconnected um, and it's sort of best served by this kind of de- emotional detachment. But I, I think nothing could be further from the truth, mm. especially when you think about the context in which these composers were writing. Yeah, I think, I mean, my, from a sort of personal performer point of view, I feel if I come off stage and I don't feel completely exhausted, then I haven't really done my job correctly. <laughs> um, not vocally exhausted, of course, but emotionally exhausted. I think if, you, you know, if you're putting the right amount of energy into it, it should be should be very tiring, especially with music like this. Mm. But of course, I think that that energy, that giving of oneself is always rewarded by the music itself, the quality of it, and also what it gives back. I mean, certainly also, I think, you know, there's a lot of a lot of pathos in this music, but also I think a lot of hope. A piece like the um, the Audi Vivosem uh, by Duarte Lobo is amazing, actually, in the way that it turns all of this kind of quite penitential feeling towards something a lot more hopeful. And that amazing soprano line at the end, uh, where it's just the single voice by itself, which is so unusual in Renaissance Benefi. Yeah, that's, I mean, that piece is uh, probably my, definitely amongst my favourites on that disc. And actually, uh, my husband and I chose to play it at my mum's funeral recently this year um, because it's it's so incredibly moving and as you say the text whilst um uh whilst very um sort of dark like the other pieces does have this sense of hope and it seemed like the perfect perfect thing for a moment like that We've now come to the end of today's podcast. First of all, we'd like to say a really big thank you to Angel Early Music for supporting today's edition. Also to let you know that our recording of this wonderful repertoire is, like all of our CDs, available from our website at marionconsort.co.uk. 
and is also on Spotify and Apple Music. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, where our handle is at Marion Consort, or you can sign up to our mailing list via our website. Thanks again for listening, and stay safe and well. <laughs>